The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Today's teaching text comes from 1 Thessalonians 2, 8-12. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses of God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Sunday for it to be true in our hearts that this is in fact a privilege and a gift and a miracle. Let's our pray as we take a few minutes to study your word together this morning, God, that you would show us a captivating and gripping image of your design for your people. To love one another, to care for one another, to serve one another, to cherish one another to be a family. Once I pray you would rid our minds and hearts of distractions and worries and fears and barriers to your word, rooting itself deep into our hearts by the power of the Spirit. We need you, Lord. Be present with us as you promised to be. We love you for all things in Christ's name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Well, when you take our membership class here at Citizens, one of the things that you'll hear us say is if you're to join our church, you're not joining an organization. You're joining a group of people, a family. And that is because we believe at the core, the picture the scriptures give us of what or who a church is to be is not an organization 
or a set of programs or a once a week worship service. We believe, as we'll explore here in part two of our vision series, that church is a family. And at at its core, what we mean is two really key things in that phrase. We mean, number one, that we share our lives, and number two, that we share our hearts. We'll explore that first part, what it means to share our lives in just a minute. But first, I want to talk for a little while about what we mean when we say family. What does it mean from the scriptures to be a part of the family of God? Well, at a base level, we have to start with Christ, right? Christ is the one through his life, death, and resurrection that unites a people to God, but also to one another. A people the scriptures refer to as the church. And we're told in the scriptures that the church is a whole number of things. It's described as a living temple, right? A place where God's spirit dwells. The church is called the body of Christ. Arms, legs, eyes, ears, all working together in unison for the glory of God. The church is referred to as the bride of Christ. The one who Christ loves and seeks after and pursues. But one of the clearest and most often used pictures in the scriptures for the people of God is that of a family. In fact, the most common word used in the entire New Testament, over 300 times to describe followers of Jesus, is the Greek word adelphoi, which translates brothers and sisters. Church, the people of God, is a family. This is how Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household or family of God. Or consider the shocking words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. See, to put your faith in Jesus means you are brought into a relationship, not only where God becomes your heavenly father, but where the church becomes your brothers and sisters, becomes your family. And throughout church history and the scriptures, your participation in the big C church family of God is lived out through your participation in the little c local church family expressions of God. What's important for us to realize and where I want to spend a little bit of time together is that there can be a disconnect between what Jesus and Paul mean when they say family and what you and I hear when they say family. So for some of us, we come from very broken families. I know a number of us in the room, when we hear Jesus makes you into a family, our initial response is like, no thanks, I'm good. We have families marked by grief, or by suffering, or by turmoil, or by pain. And so hearing the reality that Jesus wants to invite you into a family can seem a little bit scary or daunting, or I'm not really sure I even kind of want that. So the first thing we have to say is clearly that's not what Jesus means when he says family. Clearly he does not mean the most broken versions of family in our society today. But it's also important to note that the Bible also doesn't mean the best versions of family in our society today either. You see, when Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 says that his disciples are his family, his followers are his family, he isn't thinking about modern Western concepts of family at all, good or bad. He actually means that we're to relate to him and to one another as an ancient Jewish family, which is incredibly different. You see, Jesus is speaking to what sociologists would call a strong group culture or a strong group society. And here's how biblical scholar Bruce Molina would describe this type of community in his commentary on Matthew. He says, in a strong group society, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, 
destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels is right and necessary, only if in accord with group norms, and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group, here's the key line, has the priority over the individual member. That is a strong group culture. The group has the priority over the individual member. Now, I would argue that's quite a bit different to how a lot of us living in modern Western America think about ourselves or the groups or even the families that we belong to, is it not? Well, that's in large part because we don't live in a strong group culture. We live in what sociologists would call a weak group culture or a weak group society or an individual society. We see ourselves not primarily as parts of a group, but primarily as individuals and secondarily or occasionally part of groups or family units as they are beneficial. And this is why I would argue Jesus doesn't mean the best versions of our families, because in our culture, even the most vibrant, beautiful, communal, loving, modern American families, we say are that way and are loving and are awesome and are vibrant because of how well they support the individuality of one another. So you might hear or say or think things like, my family is great or that family is great because they're so supportive of the dreams and aspirations of each member. That's not at all what Jesus has in mind when he says family. To Jesus, the family of God as his people is not a supported religious group which help, which is there or exists to help you accomplish your project self. The family of God is not primarily designed for the individual benefit of each member. It's meant to function best in God's design as all members strive and give themselves away for the health of the whole thing. Now, chances are, because we don't live in a strong group society, to a lot of us, that mentality might seem a little bit odd. I would even say maybe a little bit oppressive. Some of us may feel like it sounds suffocating, or we can't even imagine belonging to a group that might stifle us or infringe on our individual freedom and autonomy. Why would I ever sacrifice what I want or need for the good of the group as a whole? And some of that feeling, some of that pushback, some of that uncertainty isn't totally unwarranted. There are a ton of ways that strong group societies go off. There are a ton of ways that there is bad and wicked and evil that comes out of strong group cultures. But it's also worth noting that there are lots of ways that weak group cultures get it wrong as well. For example, I don't think it's any coincidence that the most individualistic societies to have ever existed right now in history also tend to report the highest rates, highest rates of loneliness and anxiety to have ever existed. Now certainly those are complicated issues with tons of background and things going on, but I think it's worth considering why do the most individualistic societies in history also have the highest rates of loneliness and anxiety in history? Well, I think part of the reason is because we have put the full weight of identity and meaning onto the backs of individual persons. Stick with me here. You are now defined in our culture not by the group you belong to, but by the life you have or have not created for yourself. So throughout history, many strong group cultures, if you were making large decisions in life, what vocation to choose, who you were gonna, where you were going to live, who you were going to marry, those decisions were made in a group, if not by the group. Now we have transferred that all to our individualistic notion of society to where that whole thing, all of making of life and identity and meaning is now placed on the back of an individual, and others exist to help you set up and create that meaning yourself. What an overwhelming burden to bear, is it not? That I would be solely responsible for my own creation of meaning and identity and value. 
Now, my goal today is not to debate on strong group culture versus weak group culture, although I did study sociology some in college. It could be fun. We're not going to do that. I'm simply pointing out that when Jesus and the New Testament authors talk about the church being a family, they are not referring to how we think about family. They are referring to a strong group cultural family. They are saying we should have the same level of commitment and care and priority towards our church family that an ancient Jewish family would have towards their biological family, which will irk at the core of who we are as modern Westerners. In case you don't agree with me, let's just reread that quote. But instead of group, I want to replace the word group with church. See how this sits with you. In a strong church, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels is right and necessary only if in accord with church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church, or the church family, has the priority over the individual member. Right off the bat, let me just say, if that makes you uncomfortable, me too. As a raging introvert, sometimes I would rather the Bible not paint the picture that it does about what it, we, how we are to live in the family of God. Right? Sometimes I wish the Bible would say, hey, make a personal decision for Jesus and then interact with other believers if you like them and occasionally when you want to. But as followers of Jesus, as we talked about last week, we have to surrender all of life to him and his design. And so when we read the scriptures about being the family of God, we don't need to say, okay, this is what I think it means based on my preconceived cultural notions of family, but rather what is it actually inviting us into? And we believe the ways of Jesus are not just the right way to live, but actually the best way to live the most flourishing way to live. So I'm not just up here saying, let's be a family in all of the ways Jesus talks about it because it's the right thing to do, even though it is, but also because we think it's the best thing to do, the best way to live in the kingdom of God. And the way that Jesus talks about it is that we center our lives on him. And as we center our lives on him, we center our lives around each other. Church is a family. But now, Get that out of theoretical. I just wanted to kind of do that set up for us, make sure we're on the same page. A lot of defining our terms in this series. But that brings us to the first part of that vision of being a Jesus-centered family. Namely, we share our lives. We share our lives. The way of Jesus is not, let's all learn to care just a little bit more about each other and think about some good church things we can participate in occasionally. The way of Jesus is that we would actually intertwine our lives with his people. We would reorient radically our lives around God and around his people. This is the very thing Paul talks about in our passage today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So I know Taylor read a couple verses just to give us the context. I want to hone in on one verse in particular, verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians 2. So hopefully you're there. If not, get there. We're going to just dive deep into this one verse together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. How are we doing? Good? Everybody good? Yeah. Sweet. So, Paul writes, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. All right, to give you some context, 
Paul is writing a, his first letter, he ends up writing to 1 and 2 Thessalonians, to a church that he planted in the city of Thessalonica. If you want to read the story, you can. It's Acts chapter 17. But Paul plants this church with his kind of missionary buddy named Silas, and immediately the gospel takes such a hold in this city that all of these other religious and political leaders are all really frustrated and upset, so much so that they're like, let's kill this Paul guy. Like, this is not okay. They're, they're, everything is changing in our city because the gospel is taking root. And so the church comes to Paul, and they're like, Paul, you got to get out of here, man. Like, they're trying to kill you. You need to flee. You need to go. And 1 Thessalonians is one of these two letters Paul writes back to this church, basically all about how much he cares about them and loves them and misses them and prays for them. And in chapter 2 in particular, Paul is recapping his time in ministry there in the city. And verse 8 is the hinge point of chapter 2. And this line, also our own selves, we might have it translated our very lives, is the hinge point of the verse. Paul says, we came to you, and we certainly brought the gospel, right? We brought that to every city. Paul says uh, elsewhere in scripture, you know, I preached Christ and Christ crucified. That's my one repeating message over and over again. We certainly brought you the gospel, but we also shared with you our very lives. We intertwined our lives with you. We ate together on a regular basis. We attended the temple consistently together to worship and to pray. We lived the day in, day out reality of our lives together. And when it came time for me to leave, Acts 17, we made the decision together. We shared our very lives. I think for many today, church is a place where we learn to spiritually intertwine our lives together, but not the rest of it. Like, my group knows my spiritual life, right? My group, my community group knows my sin, they know my struggle, they know my prayer life, they know my spiritual practices or lack thereof. And don't get me wrong, that's awesome. That's next week's sermon. I'll let Garrison handle that one. But Paul says we shared not only our spiritual lives, but our whole selves. Our whole lives, the boring stuff, the mundane stuff, the lame stuff, we shared that too. So in other words, I didn't just ask you to help me fight sin, I asked you to help me file my taxes. We didn't just study the Bible together. We ate together. We worked out together. We joined rec leagues together. They didn't have them. Okay, I'm exaggerating. I didn't just get your wisdom on spiritual practices. I also got your wisdom on where to buy a house or what should I do for work or what our school plan for our kids should be. Why? Because that's what a family does. Families live life together. This is the way of God's family that we want to live into, that we would be able to say to one another as a part of this church, I shared with you not only the gospel, yes and amen, but my very life. I intertwined my life with you. I centered my life around you and this community. I think a really helpful way to paint this picture is a term that some of you guys might be familiar with, but I want to just introduce into the vocabulary of our church, and that is a term known as refrigerator rights. Refrigerator rights. Think about it this way. My mom and dad come up a lot. They have a little in-law suite in our basement. And uh, this is how it works in our family. When they come up for the weekends or to hang out, if they get hungry or they get thirsty, they don't stop to be like, hey, Tim, can I have like a drink of water or something? Like, I'm kind of hungry. Can I get a snack, right? No. What do they do? They go into my fridge. They take the drinks, right? They take the snacks out of the pantry. They make coffee. My mom makes way too much of my coffee, but it's fine. <laughs> they don't ask. Why? Because they're family. They have refrigerator rights. They walk in, if they're hungry, if they're thirsty, they get what they need. They have access to our home and therefore to our lives. Why? Because they're family. I think that's a beautiful picture, refrigerator rights, of what we're going for as a church community. That if you are a part of our church family, you come to my house, you don't knock, you walk in. You take your shoes off, you get something out of the fridge, you say hey to my kids, right? We're family. 
That is the type of intertwining we're going for. Not a place where I say, hey to you, hey, how's it going? Let's catch up for two minutes during Pass the Peace on Sundays, and then I'll see you again next week. We intertwine our lives. You have full access to my home, full access to my life, and me to you. And that's what we're aiming for. And by God's grace, we've actually seen some of this happen over the past two years. We've seen our church be a family over the holidays. We've had folks in our church say, hey, we're not going home for Christmas. If you don't want to go home or you can't go home, you come to our house. We'll be family. We'll celebrate Christmas together. We've done more meal trains as a community over the past two years than I can even count or remember or ever seen in my life. For sickness, for loss, for grief, for pregnancies, and everything else in between. Cared for one another. I mean, just two weeks ago, it felt like we had a month where my kids were sick nonstop, and folks in our group just texted us, and they were like, name the night, we're coming to watch your kids, go get a date. That's care. That's the type of family we're after. We've had people in our church invite others to come and live with them. No rent, no strings attached, no timeline on it, just come be a part of our family. Let's share life together. Folks who bought houses in the same neighborhoods, wanted to be just a few blocks or a few doors away so they could better organize their lives around one another. We've had folks go on vacations together. We've had folks take cruises together. <laughs> folks intertwine their lives. Just trying to say, man, this church thing isn't just the spiritual stuff of life. It is an all of life together. That's what we are after. And if you're new or you've been around for a little bit and you're like, okay, you, you say church is a family, Jesus and our family, what does that mean? I just want to invite you. That's what we mean. And with all the welcome in my voice, you too. You can be in on this too. You can be welcomed into this too. Part of what we're going to talk about over the last two weeks of this series, that on mission with him, is the reality that we exist to center our lives around Jesus, center our lives around one another, and invite others to do the same. You can be in on this, too. We started to be the family of God together. We didn't start Citizens Church to be a, another landing zone option for your Sunday morning worship. We didn't start Citizens Church to be another Bible study option or a place to get teaching or worship once a week. We didn't start this church to have great programs for your kids or for different uh, needs in the city. All those things are good, and we want to do all of those things, but we started this because we were captivated by Acts 2 and a picture of the people of God reorienting all of their life around God and each other. Daily, Acts 2 says, day by day. But that's a tall order, so the question becomes, how? How do we start to live into this? I think Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 is, is really helpful. So in this one verse, as we dissected together over our last few minutes, he's going to give us what I think are three heart postures of how to begin to live out the family of God. And it's my experience when I think about church family, both in my own heart and also in those that I interact with and pastor, my experience is that there's kind of a few things. The first is like, yes, I'm all in on this. Yes, church is a family, but I'm just really tired. Like, it's just as exhausting to keep putting in the work. I think the second group is the group that's like, no, I'm good. Like, I'm okay. Like, I'll do a little bit. I'll kind of like, you know, half in, half out. And then the third group is the group that I think hears about this all of life intertwining. There's just a lot of fear. Maybe church baggage. Maybe you've been hurt in the past by Christians. Maybe you've been hurt in the past by your biological family. Whatever the case may be. I think that's kind of seems to be one of the three buckets. So wherever you are, I want to encourage you that I think these three heart postures from Paul will speak into those different things in some way, shape, or form. So let's look at them together. Heart posture number one. Our posture number one is love. Love. Paul says, if we're going to be family together, it's going to take love. Look back at verse 8. I'm going to say that like 10 more times. So, being affectionately desirous 
of you. We can translate this phrase, yearning for you, longing for you. Paul loves this church. He cares deeply for this church. The, the first heart posture we must take, like Paul, is love. What does that mean? Well, based on the biblical definition of love, love is that I must think you're more important and more valuable than I am. The first heart posture we must have if we're going to live as a family of the people of God is I must be able to look at you and say, your needs over mine. Your hurts over mine. Your desires, your preferences over mine. The scriptures put it this way in Philippians chapter 2. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you know the passage, he's going to go on to talk about how Jesus is the perfect one who does that, who views others, even though he's king and Messiah and Lord, as more significant than himself by going to the cross. And that's the first step towards sharing life together, is that I have to love you. I have to be willing to put you above myself. I think we see this in the most basic form in marriage, right? What is marriage in its most healthiest form? It's two people saying, because I love you, I'm going to sacrifice for the rest of my life to see you flourish and prosper. Right? That's the definition of love at its core in marriage. And so two people get up in front of a, a, a group and they say, okay, I'm loving, because I love you, I'm going to sacrifice all of who I am for you. And out of that mutual love and self-sacrifice, a family is built. Works the same way in the church. We're going to say to one another, okay, because I love you, I'm going to sacrifice for you. I'm going to give of myself for you. And through our mutual love via self-sacrifice, a family is built. The family of God. But it doesn't just mean that I have to think you're more important than me and in the most humble, Christ-centered way, but it also means I have to le learn to love those who are tough to love. Here's the reality. This is Paul Washer, not me, so you can thank him for the conviction that's about to come. He says, if you want to know if you love your church, you love your church to the extent to which you love its most difficult member. Some of y'all are asleep already. Say it again. You love your church to the extent to which you love its most difficult member. I heard that this week and I was like, I'm done. I don't know what I'm doing. Because it's easy to be like, yeah, I love my church. Like, I love my church. When what we actually mean is I love my friends within the church. I love the people I get along with the best within the church. I love the people I prefer within the church. Do you want to know how much you love your church family? How much do you love its most difficult member? How much do you love that annoying guy who never stops talking about that one unique hobby that he and he alone has? Hypothetically. <laughs> you want to know if you love your church? How much do you love that member who it seems like every time I talk to them, they're just desperate to make it about them? You want to know how much you love your church? How much do you love that person who's a part of your church family who hurts you? Who made that offhanded comment about you to someone else? Who said that thing or shared that thing they shouldn't have shared that you thought you shared in confidence? Sharing our lives requires self-sacrificing love for each and every member. So the first step towards that posture then is to see and receive Christ's love. If the first part posture required to be a family is love, then the first step is to see and receive Christ's love for us. The first step towards loving that really difficult guy is to see and receive how Christ loves you when you are in fact really difficult. The first step towards loving the person desperate and always in need of care is to see and receive how Christ loves you when you are desperate and always in need of care. The first step towards loving the person who hurts you, sinned against you, is to see and receive how Christ loves you when you hurt and sin against him. 
to see how much Christ has done for us, how much he has loved us. The Philippians 2 passage that he would lower himself and count others more significant than himself by going to the cross, even to die for the sins of those who are murdering him. That's the type of love we have to receive. So our posture number one is love. Our posture number two is intentionality. Intentionality. Back to verse eight. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready. Some translations say we were eager, or even we were resolved. Paul says, because we loved you, it was set at the forefront of our minds that we were going to share the gospel and our lives with you. We were ready. We were eager. We were looking for opportunity. I remember early on in ministry, I was sharing with a mentor of mine about some of the struggles I had with just the busyness of life. <laughs> I was like, ah, this is a lot. Like, I'm trying to lead this church. Like, we got a new kid, married, friends. I want to have hobbies. I want to have a life with God. Like, I want to do all these things. How do you find time? And he was ahead of me by a lot of years in ministry. And I was like, you seem like you have a semi-healthy life. Like, what are you doing? How are you doing this? And how are you finding time for everything on your responsibility plate? And I remember he said something really helpful. He said, Tim, life is busy. And it's going to keep being busy. But I have always found time for what I most value. That was so helpful. He's like, yeah, it's busy. I'm not going to negate the busyness. I'm not going to tell you it's going to get less busy. It's going to get more busy, most likely. But I have always found time for what I most value. Listen, life is only going to get busier for you. That's the theme of my life. I don't know about you, but my life gets busier every single year, it feels like. And so to hear this message to say, yes, intertwining our lives and think about, man, I just wish I had more time, I had more free space, I wish I lived closer to people, I wish I had more flexible income to spend on things, I wish I just had all of these things. That's not the call of sacrifice that we're talking about in a second. That's a wish dream to go back to college, which isn't going to happen. You are not going to go back to college. Well, you might. That was a fairy tale land. We got to live two minutes away from your closest friends and go to class for like an hour a week and have so much free time to go sit in coffee shops and share the deepest, darkest secrets of your soul. Of course you think the closest friends you've ever had were in the four years or five or six you spent in college. How do we live this out in the busyness of real life? That's the question for us. How do I live intentionally in the midst of the actual real responsibilities that I have? Because the answer is not just to phone in on the responsibilities. The answer is to step in with intentionality. In other words, church family is not just going to happen like it did in those four years of college. It takes intentionality. So that's the next step. Next step number two. If the heart posture is intentionality, the next step is schedule and sacrifice. Schedule and sacrifice. We've got to look at our calendar. We've got to take the effort and energy to make the plans. We've got to be willing to say no to other good things in order to say yes to living life together as a family. I'm feeling the tension of this right now. We just signed Harper up for soccer this spring. She's going to meet the age deadline by like a week. And so we're like, yes. <laughs> it's going to be so bad. Um, but we looked at our schedule, and the games are eight Saturdays this spring. And we've already looked at the schedule for it, and three of those eight we have stuff with our community group or with our church family. And so we're like, she's going to miss three of the eight. And as a pastor, I'm like, yes, I'm going to preach on that. It's going to go great. It's going to go awesome. In my heart, I'm like, but that's three of the eight games she's going to miss. So I'm reminding myself, number one, my child is not going to be a soccer star in the future. And I know that because she's my child. <laughs> but also I'm reminding myself, yes, that's the type of intentionality and sacrifice it takes to intertwine our lives with others. 
to actually live as the family of God and not blink and hit the summer and go, man, I don't feel any closer to these people that I've committed my life to. Well, yeah, because I was gone. We didn't sacrifice. We are intentional. So what, what about for you? Maybe for you, it's you got to learn to let your kid nap at 2 p.m. instead of 1 p.m. Or go to bed a little bit later than usual so you can be there. Maybe you shouldn't or can't go back home to see your family four times a month. Maybe you need to go to work earlier so you can get off in time to make the hangout with your community group. Maybe for some of us, it looks like adding nothing new. You're like, no, there's just literally no way to. And I hear that. Maybe for you, it's not adding something. It's just changing the way you're currently doing the things you're already doing. So maybe you have a particular hobby, and you do that hobby alone. What would it look like for you to invite members of your church family to be a part of that hobby with you? You're a busy mom. Okay, yeah, totally. Somebody has to go buy groceries. Well, what would it look like for you to invite somebody in your community group? Hey, go grocery shopping with me. It's going to be 30 minutes and chaotic, but at least we can get some time together. Your job is crazy. Okay, can you get 45 minutes? Can somebody actually bring their lunch to your cubicle? Just sit in the cubicle, hash it out, be next to each other while you both work, and it's crazy together. Don't think you have to start or invent a bunch of new things or see this as some weighty burden. Look at what you're already doing and see how you might do those with family. That's number two. Number three, patient commitment. Patient commitment. Look at the end of verse 8. This is new. I, I didn't see this until this week, and it's been my favorite thing this week. I hope it is for you. He said, being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own lives. Because you have, what does it say? What does it say? Become very dear to us. Not because you had been. Not because you were, because you had become meaning there was a point in Paul's life where the Thessalonians were not dear to him. Chances are they started out as strangers. He rises in the city, sees a bunch of people who don't know Jesus. Hey, let me tell you the gospel, lead you to Jesus. But what does he say? You had become very dear to us. For some of us, we give up on church being a family for the same reason we give up on dating relationships. Because it's not love at first sight. So we show up to a community, and we're exploring the faith, and we're asking, is this a place where I can belong? And it's not instant click and connection, and we're like, well, that's not going to be my family. Let me move on and try somewhere else. We've bought into this idea that with friendships, it should just kind of happen. Like, it should just, I should just show up, and at some point, I'm going to look across the circle, and we're going to make eye contact, and it's going to be like, you two, awesome, best friends forever. And then we're going to, like, fist pound, and it's going to be the greatest thing ever. It's just not how life works. And chances are, if we come in with that posture, one of two things is going to happen. Either we're never going to find a place to settle, to dig some roots, to be family, or that feeling of friendship, love at first sight is going to happen, and then we're going to be disappointed in six months when those people we think are awesome turn out to be, in fact, what the Bible says they are, sinners in need of a Savior. It takes patience, time after time after time, growing in love for one another, which leads us to next step number three, which may not make sense, but I'll try to explain it. Get off the fence. Get off the fence. The invitation of this become very dear to us is to stop the endless scrolling of options in your life. That's for Netflix, right? Lindsay was out of the house Thursday night. I spent, I wish this was a joke, I spent an hour and a half scrolling through Netflix and could not pick something to watch. And then I realized at the end of it, she came home and she was like, what did you do? And I said, nothing. I just scrolled through Netflix because I realized I hate movies. So here we are. Listen, leave that for the streaming service, not for life. 
hey, uh, yeah, but I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm really gonna be here a long time. I, don't, I just don't like. What if what if I get another job opportunity in another city? Like, what if what if the Lord calls me, whatever that means, somewhere else? Like, what if I just feel like you know this isn't working out anymore? Like, what do I do? Here's my encouragement to you: land somewhere, land somewhere. When we were talking about getting ready uh, to graduate seminary, this was. Uh, years ago, trying to like figure out, okay, we want a church plant, where, all those kinds of things. The guy sat me down, and he, he gave me the best just life advice, but also ministry advice I think I've ever received when it comes to this idea of landing somewhere. He said, Tim, figure out where you can build a home. Not what feels like home, but where you can build a home, get there as soon as possible, and stay there as long as possible. So let me just challenge you. For some of us, we live with our feet on both sides of the fence. One foot in, wanting it to be this flourishing family, wanting to have all these flourishing relationships, but always keeping our, let's get out of this option available as, as quickly as they hurt us. Or as soon as it's not fulfilling anymore. Or as soon as I lose the passion for it. And so let me just encourage you, land somewhere. It doesn't have to be forever in Charlotte. That'd be awesome if it was. That'd be so great, I pray for that. It doesn't even have to be citizens. That'd be awesome if it was. That'd be great, I'll pray for that. Land somewhere. I would hate so much for us to get a year from now, a year and a half from now, two years from now, and you look up and go, man, I'm still lonely like I am today because I was never willing to get off the fence. I was never willing to commit to somewhere. In some of its imperfections, in some of its ways it didn't live up to my dreams, in some of the ways it wasn't perfect, but because I was a slave to perfection, I never let myself be known or loved anywhere. So just get off the fence. See what God might do. And listen, that comes with a risk. I think in our age of mobility, in our age of hop around to whatever suits you next, leave this city, go to that city, go to that city, go to that city, go to that city. Um, millennials and Gen Z will change jobs more times before they're 30 than their parents did in their lifetime. And I think in our age of where just that's the norm, it's actually the more courageous thing to do to not leave. I think it's actually the more courageous thing to do to say, my city no longer satisfies me, and I'm just going to stay. Because you know what's going to happen if I go somewhere else two years from now? That's not going to satisfy me either. And this church has stopped satisfying me, but you know what? I think I'm just going to stay. Because I know if I go somewhere else two years from now, that church is going to frustrate me too. That's life. So we get off the fence and we put down some roots. And here's the encouragement in all of this, and here's where I want to close as we kind of lead into communion. I've been encouraged this week looking at the scriptures, not to see God's heart for us loving one another, but first and foremost, for the reality that the church is founded on Christ. And what I mean by that is, when he calls us to love one another as the family, remember what he says in Matthew 12, right? He points to his disciples, and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Those who will do the will of my father. So they just encourage us and let us rest in the reality that what Jesus calls us to towards one another, he first does towards us. As he calls us to sacrifice for one another, to serve one another, to be intentional towards one another, to love one another, to be patiently committed to one another, does he not do all of those things more beautifully and fully for us? He's patient with us. He's intentional with us. He's committed to us. He dies for this thing we call the church and all of its weirdness and awkwardness and floundering uncertainty. He cares deeply. It's his bride. It's not just his bride. It's his family. He would love nothing more than to see his family delighting in the truth. I think about this a lot, um, now having two kids. Um, there are few more delightful realities than seeing my two kids laugh together. It's like making me tear up now. It's like, that's weird. <laughs> it's not weird to cry. Emotions are good. Um, 
that we do these times, these moments, they're very rare in our house, but these occasional once or twice moments where Lindsay and I'll be standing in the kitchen and we'll just hear over in the playroom off around the corner, uh, Harper doing something silly and Nora just laughing and then just having a ball. And she's learned um, that when we hug her and it's a good hug, she goes, mm, that's a good hug. <laughs> Thank you, it's very cute. And uh, she started doing that with Nora. And so you'll walk into the room and they'll be giggling and then she'll run over and she'll hug Nora and she'll be like, mm, that's a good hug, Nora. <laughs> I mean, there are a few, there are a few fatherhood joys greater than seeing that, and that's 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 the Psalms, right? It's a pleasant aroma. How sweet it is in the sight of God when His people live together in unity. And so, if that's like tearing up, worthy to think about my earthly kids as an earthly dad actually learning to love one another and get along occasionally. How much more joy and delight does it bring to our Heavenly Father when he sees us as his children, loving one another, serving one another, caring for one another, giving each other hugs, mm, that's a good hug, <laughs> making each other laugh, intertwining, revolving our lives around each other. That's what we're going for, nothing less. We're going to ask that of you if you want to be here because we think it's the best way to live, not just for us, but for you. And we're here for your flourishing in Christ. So if you would stand, I want to lead us to the table. We're going to take communion together um, in just a moment. But I would encourage you, uh, as you are doing that, uh, one of the challenges in the scriptures uh, is that this is not just an individual meal that you're going to take individually. It's not just an individual, I mean, it is an individual cracker that you're going to dip and you're going to feed yourself with it. But we're doing this We're doing this together as the people of God. We're coming to the table as a family. We're coming to the table as a community. And so let me just encourage you, as you come to the table, don't be afraid to look around. People will be like, why are you staring at me? It's like, because I want to remember that we're family. And I remember we're, we're celebrating the sacrifice of Jesus together. I want to remember we're taking the body, we're taking the blood to remember what Christ has done together. That he died for you just as much as he died for me. That he loves you just as much as he loves me. That he's patient with you just as much as he's patient with me. And so as you take communion, let it be, yes, a reminder to your own soul of what Christ has done for you, but let it also this morning be a reminder of what he's done for those around you, for your church family together. We invite all who love Christ, who love Jesus, to take communion. We pray. Lord, we love you. We're grateful for you. Thanks for Jesus on the cross. Lord, thank you that he didn't die for a bunch of individuals, but he died for a community, a family, a people that he was going to connect together. Lord, you spoke it in creation over the first man. It is not good for man to be alone. Lord, and that call has echoed through generations. You call Abraham, you tell him you're going to make him into a great nation. You call David, you tell him his throne's going to live on forever. And you send Jesus to die to reconcile a people, a group, a family back to yourself. Lord, so I pray in all the ways we want to individualize our spirituality, Lord, that you would speak conviction into the midst of that. Lord, I pray for those of us in the room who are tired. But it feels like, man, I've been giving myself to this. And it's exhausting, and I feel betrayed, and I feel hurt, and I feel alone still. Lord, that you would bolster our courage. You would strengthen our faith. Lord, for those of us who are scared, 
being loved, revolving my life around others who could, who could leave me, who could hurt me, who could betray me. I've done that before, and it was painful, Lord. I pray that you would speak courage. Lord, for those of us who would say, no, nah, no thanks, Lord, I pray that you would speak conviction. You'd speak into the lives of our hearts. You would invite us into the beauty of your family. Lord, we love you. We need you. Thank you for Jesus on the cross. Lord, we celebrate him through communion, through prayer, through singing as he is worthy of it.